0: In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Um, first off, I am obviously not uh, Father Martin. Our rector is in the hospital this weekend awaiting surgery to um, fix one of the leads on his pacemaker, and so we'd ask that you would be praying for him, especially tomorrow, um, and we look forward to his uh, quick return. This morning, I want to start by taking a look at the middle of the reading we heard from Isaiah 11. Now, like many other Old Testament passages that predict and point to the coming Messiah, Isaiah 11 has a number of beautiful and inspiring pictures of the Anointed One, as well as the kingdom of God. We read that the Messiah would have the spirit of the Lord resting on him, giving him wisdom and understanding. We read about this series of enemies that will no longer live at enmity with each other. Wolves and lambs, leopards and goats, cows and bears, children playing around once poisonous snakes sort of like a children's song, practically writes itself. But in the middle, we find ourselves hearing some verses that can make us uncomfortable. We hear about judgment. Judgment for the poor, striking the earth with the rod of his mouth is what the Messiah would do, killing the wicked from the breath of his lips. And John the Baptist, calling the people of Israel and preparing the way for Jesus, we love to quote his stated unworthiness to untie Jesus' sandals and that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire instead of water, predicting Pentecost. But we don't often talk about what John says about his winnowing fork, or his clearing of the threshing floor and the unquenchable fire with which he will burn away the chaff. We, and by we I of course mean I, usually like to speak about God's coming in terms of the final result, the world being as it should be, and the peace that exists. I don't necessarily like the judgment that comes just before that. But God doesn't simply wipe away sin as if it never existed. He comes to deal with sin. He comes in judgment. Now, any other week, I might turn at this point to Isaiah's picture of God judging for the poor and the meek, what some refer to as God's preferential option for the poor. Even our psalm talks about, may he defend the poor among the people, deliver the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. This is good social justice stuff that I would usually latch onto, but in Advent, maybe we ought to think instead about what the call is on our lives as we make preparations for the coming of our Lord. The response to judgment is, of course, repentance. If you think about the story of Jonah, who is called to go preach judgment to Nineveh, he refuses because he knows that he'll preach judgment to the Assyrians and that they would repent and that God would be merciful. Repentance is the natural response to a word of judgment. But John's baptism is exactly that, a baptism of repentance, of turning and preparation. It's not the final turn away from sin. We know that comes from Jesus, but it's this preparing the way of the Lord. John's message was that the kingdom of heaven was going to be coming, and Jesus would preach that the kingdom of heaven had arrived. But we're not at Jesus yet, we're at John. And so the call to us this morning is this idea of repentance. And instead of a blanket call to turn from sin, I want to look at some of the folks who are particularly scandalized in our gospel reading and see what we can learn from them. Yes, the Pharisees, that group of holier-than-thou uptight jerks who always want to rain on Jesus' healing and good news parade, our favorite scapegoats for our sins. We're not as bad as the Pharisees, oh, those dumb Pharisees. Let's look at John's condemnation of them. He calls them a brood of vipers when they come forward. And how is it that this group, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they get rejected at the door? I mean, the Pharisees were holier than thou because they were kind of actually holier than thou. They kept the law better than anyone else did. They were the most rigorous of the Jews. Now, why do they get rejected? We can give some of our usual answers that we know about the Pharisees. That they obeyed the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. That their over-the-top extra requirements on the biblical laws... We're keeping people from God. We think about flipping tables and these sorts of things. But I think there's something in this passage, which then comes up again in our Romans reading, that will hopefully help us. John the Baptist criticizes them for their comfort in their status as children of Abraham. In their understanding of the coming Messiah, they expected judgment to come on their side. When God was coming, he was going to come to judge things for them. It was going to be for the people of Israel, and of course, as the Israelites who were most faithful to the covenant, they would be found to be justified. Their works were a status symbol of their insider status. But what the Pharisees don't understand is that their calling, and Israel's calling, the calling that their father Abraham received, was a calling for others. God called a people not for their own sake, but for the sake of the world, and that's why Paul in Romans, which is a missionary support letter, so he kind of has an agenda at, you know, getting to go out and preach the gospel. But he says this, Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And then he quotes all these Old Testament passages about the Gentiles praising God. Paul knew that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, but he was the Jewish Messiah to fulfill their promise to be a light to the world. And so the reason the Pharisees end up on the wrong side of judgment isn't just because they were too harsh or because they were hypocritical. They placed all their bets, all their hopes on their insider status rather than thinking that their status was a means by which to bring others inside. They were religious protectionists, assuming that what God wanted for them to do was to keep their treasures safe and clean and pure when what he called them to do was to give it all away. But what of us? We're not Pharisees. Again, they're the scapegoats, we're the good guys here. And so, especially us as Gentiles, we're included in this covenant, good news for us, what does God call us to do? Well, in the preparatory season of Advent, in our waiting for our king to come, we had better get to repenting. If you're doing the hard work of looking at your own life and you don't see some junk in there, you might try looking harder, or maybe just ask your family and friends to tell you what's wrong with you, they probably have a few ideas. The way we prepare for God's coming is to repent, to turn from sin, and bear fruit that is worthy of repentance. And don't let your status you place on yourself as a person of faith or someone who attends the right type of church get in the way. The church is a hospital for the sick, and if you don't recognize that you're one of the sick people, the first diagnosis we give is that of delusion. (laughs) God's first advent wasn't to come and overthrow the Romans as the Israelites expected, because the Romans weren't the enemy in the first place. The enemy that Jesus came to deal with was the sin that already lived in the hearts of God's people, their stone hearts that had to be replaced with hearts of flesh. And what should concern us is that the Pharisees, the most religiously vigorous of all the people of Israel, were no less sinful than the tax collectors and the prostitutes. When Jesus says the healthy don't need a doctor, the sick do, he doesn't mean that there are some who don't need him. He's saying that the only people that can be healed by a doctor are the ones that make an appointment. On top of that, we sometimes go the other way and say, oh, it's fine. God loved the tax collectors and he loved the prostitutes. Everything's fine, but you don't get to repent unless you acknowledge your sin. The reason the tax collectors and the Pharisees come forward, or excuse me, the tax collectors and the prostitutes come forward is because they recognize their wretchedness. It's a time for us to be reformed here, I guess. Original sin. Our wretchedness is the reason we need to repent, and if we don't recognize that, we're not going to be able to repent. We're not going to be able to respond and prepare ourselves for God's coming. And so we all have some repenting to do. And today we hear that we had better get to it, because God comes not just to set things right, but to set things right by dealing with sin, including our own. But then there's the good news. Because we know that in his first coming, God dealt with the pervasive sickness of sin by taking it upon himself. Repentance and preparation are about allowing God to transform us and offer us grace. The thing about repentance is it isn't just, I'll try and do better. It's, I am bad, God, and you are good, and you love me nonetheless. The church is the hospital, and it's through the transforming power of Christ that we can be made well. When we all recognize our status as in need of God, then we can fully receive from him. Then we can truly have God coming into our lives now and prepare ourselves for his coming in the age to come. And trusting in his mercy, trusting that all the things that we do that mandate repentance have been nailed to the cross and we bear them no more, as the hymn says. We can have hope in what lies before us. That beautiful passage about these animals lying down together, that's what we have once we've repented. The coming of our Messiah is not just to free us from earthly powers, but from the powers of sin and death that are kicking and scratching away on their way to the ultimate defeat. Christ the King Sunday was two weeks ago, and that is still true. Death has still been defeated, and so any lingering power that death and sin have in this world, we know that it is waning, and we know that there is a final judgment on sin and death. And so we know, as we repent of the sin that still exists and still plagues us, we know that it has been defeated, and because of that, we can look forward to its ultimate defeat. And so I want to close with these beautiful pictures from Isaiah and Paul. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Amen.